Hello and welcome to Yappiness. I'm your host, Nicholas Mathias, and today we're joined by Colton Parks. Colton has been a good friend of mine since middle school, and one of the things I admire most about him is his calm demeanor. He always has a level-headed approach to stressful situations. Here's Colton. First, before we get into this, um, I want to talk about what what is your background? What is your education? Just so that we can give the audience a little bit of context. Gotcha. So uh, went to high school with a famous podcaster now named Nicholas Matthias. Oh, sure. Uh, he at, in Wichita, Kansas. After that, I went to a little school called Lubbock Christian University in Lubbock, Texas, uh, mostly because they offered a decent scholarship and because at the time I was a much stronger Christian and very professing. So I d- wanted to go there for the faith education. Uh, then after that, uh, I went to China for, uh, was supposed to be a one year to two years, ended up being about six months thanks to a virus and, uh, came home and was sitting around in my parents' house and said, I need to go to grad graduate school. So I went to ACU, Abilene Christian University, mostly because it was highly recommended to me by one of my favorite professors at Lubbock Christian University, Professor Dr. Bill or Dr. Carol Carroll. Dr. Bill Carroll is one of my current professors. Uh, Yeah, so came to this program and am a year and a half into it. So one semester away from graduating my master's degree, I have my comprehensive exams to see if I actually know anything uh, at the beginning of January. Well, if there anything like the math comprehensive exams, they're more like competency exams. So you have nothing to worry about. Hopefully it's the same with your system. They're pretty rough, I'll tell you, but we won't talk about that right now. Anyway, yes. I wanted to start by talking about your job in China uh, because you you taught abroad in China. So what was your job in China? It's the only interesting thing about me. Uh, (laughs) My job in China was as a educator slash missionary. Uh, I didn't take the missionary part very seriously, to be honest. I'm not a very good Christian missionary. Uh, the, I worked at Nanhua University in Hangyang, China, which is in the Wuhan province. Uh, so, uh, same province as Wuhan, I mean, it's in the Hunan province. Uh, so very close to where the coronavirus thing started. In fact, I was in Wuhan, uh, over Thanksgiving, whenever it was first being a disease. So I was right at ground zero, yeah. not to make this about coronavirus, but like life is weird sometimes, right? You know, I've got those questions already itching, you know? Yep. I did eat the bat. I was case zero. I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, what, like, what was your biggest culture shock going over there? Uh, surprisingly, China is very American these days, especially the larger cities. If you go out into the rural areas, uh, you'll get a lot of culture shocks and a lot of like, they do things differently here type moments. But if you're in a bigger city like I was, it's very American. They do do things a little bit differently. Uh, honestly, the biggest culture shock when I first got there was the way roads are treated. It sounds silly, but, you know, in America, people don't walk on the roads. That's not like a thing anymore. In China, the roads are for the citizens. You walk on the roads. People play ping pong in the middle of the street sometimes. Not the major streets, of course. No one's doing that on the highway. But even in neighborhoods, people will have ping pong tables set up in the middle of the street just playing it (laughs) as cars have to find other ways around. Not that cars really go to those back streets very often, but still. It's very different from how America is. Okay. This isn't really an alley I want to pursue for a long time, but you've piqued my interest successfully. Do people carry around ping pong tables? Like how normal is street ping pong? Street ping pong is pretty normal in China. (laughs) Uh, Ping pong is one of like the biggest sports uh, in China. It's very, very fun to go to. One time I went to one of my students volleyball games with uh, some of the other teachers. They just invited us and we were like, hey, why not? So we go over and watch them, but I go to the, take a bathroom break real quick, and I'm walking past this other warehouse-sized gymnasium, and I hear just 
plink, 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 like just constant. And so I peek my head in and there's probably about 500, 600 people in there all just playing ping pong around this massive <laughs> warehouse. It's a huge sport <laughs> over there. Uh, street ping pong, not as common as the people usually go places to play it but in neighborhoods yeah you'll see that set up you'll see these little gyms too in neighborhoods like just random pull-up bars and uh i don't even know how to describe them they're 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 for mostly elderly people use them it's very interesting to watch actually oh the dancing old ladies of course that's another <laughs> interesting part of chinese neighborhoods every evening all the old women go out and start doing a, a like tai chi ritualistic dance uh that they one of my friends tried to join in once and was unsuccessful he was kind of rejected that was sad to see he just he's never been good with ladies though so you know like <laughs> so well, I'm a bit caught off guard by how, <laughs> how, how like different. <laughs> so... It's the it's it's a little different, but a lot of things are the same. You know, you know people still like the the restaurant scene is similar. The way people go out and drink, go to parties, go to bars, all that's pretty similar to how it works in America. Uh, the biggest difference is in terms of like the daily life scene is they really like karaoke over there. It's a very big deal uh, called uh, KTVs, what they call them. You go to these uh, private booth karaoke places. That's the biggest thing that they have over there that we don't really do in America. Uh, and yeah, shopping. It, it's a China. China's a communist nation, right? But they're a capitalist world. Like they definitely participate in consumerism and consumerism culture. So like the minor culture differences are there, but you get used to it pretty quickly because the broader strokes things are mostly the same. You know, you still have your McDonald's if you want it, all that stuff. So what was your relationship like with your students? Uh, being an American gave me certain privileges that for like friendships with my students that most teachers don't get to have because that was part of the job was to get closer to the students and help them practice, practice English outside of like the classroom. So my, I was one of the few professors like who did get to go and have dinner with my students and hang out with them on a more peer to peer basis. Uh, since that's how you learn English, right? The school is very upfront about you being their friends more than just their teachers. Uh, the relationship there does get a bit complicated because it gets difficult to grade your friends. So I never try to get too close to you and my students. But overall, I would say we had a very friendly relationship. Uh, obviously, being a white American guy also presented some uh you get looks, you get, you get fetishized just a little bit. People talk about you behind your back. You know, you are an immigrant living in a foreign place. So all those similar things that happen to immigrants in America happen to you when you're in China. That's really interesting. One thing we've talked about was, um, I was you being an immigrant and you, uh, experiencing this kind of like otherism that we're not used to as white guys in America. You know, I was, I was talking to a friend of mine who was talking about going to a barbecue uh, of a, a family that was POC. And we were talking about how it's weird as a white guy to be the other in a room because it's not something that we're used to it. And yet it's something that uh, people of color experience like every day. So what was it like walking in? I mean, I, did you experience walking into a bar and being the other, like being the one white guy in a sea of not white guys? Uh, yeah, there definitely is a, a, there definitely is like an alterity there, a uh, anotherness to being stuck in a foreign place as a white guy and a bunch of with a bunch of Chinese people around you. Uh, it just happens. Uh, the there there are a couple of experiences I had that were particularly like revealing of your other of my otherness. Uh, 
most of the time it didn't bother me that much. I've always been kind of self-aware of like immigration, especially because my family backgrounds with my stepfather being a Mexican guy and having experience hanging out with a bunch of Spanish speaking people before. Uh, there are those moments in America where you are in the minority for once. In China, it's just the extended version of that. Uh, and yeah, I remember there's there's one there's this kid. I think I've told you the story before, Nick. But I'll tell it for your audience again. Uh, this kid, he's walking with his grandmother because uh, in China, grandmothers raise the kids, so they're always with their grandmothers. That's where you see kids. So this kid is walking with his grandmother. He turns around and he sees me. And he does a quick double take. And he's like, "Oh, there's a white guy behind us," and he lets go of his grandmother's arm. His grandmother doesn't even look at him when he does this. He runs back to me and he just smacks me across the leg. <laughs> and then he runs away and grabs his grandmother's hand again. And I had no idea what to do because <laughs> like, I just got hit. Like, what am I going to do? Start yelling at English at this like 80 year old woman who doesn't speak a word of it. Yeah. I didn't know enough Chinese. Up to up on be, this like, kid. Yeah. I didn't know enough Chinese to make this like a big deal. Like I just got hit. There was nothing I can do. And <laughs> in a very small way, that's the injustice immigrants face in the United States too. <laughs> like I had no recourse. There was no justice for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? It's like you got hit in the leg and like meanwhile, like children are being put in cages, you know, it's like, yeah, just radical. Listen, Different. don't get me wrong. Even even in other countries, you still have a little bit of white privilege surrounding you because people assume you have money, people assume you're educated, and people assume that you're like, uh, they just assume that you're like the traditional white guy, whether you're Russian or American. If you're a white guy in China, you must either have money or be an educated person. Like that's the perception people have of you. Except for the ones who just hate white people. There are those too. Those are fun interactions. They call you Wygo Ren, which means like white ghost. <laughs> do you think that's, do you, not the white ghost, but specifically assuming you have money or assuming you're educated, do you think that's wrong to assume that? Not, not particularly, especially not in the areas that I was in. Like, if you obviously this is particular to living in Hangyang, which is a medium-sized city. It's not Beijing. There's a lot of white people in like Beijing or Shanghai or those really, really massive mega cities. But where I was, not so much. There were white people. You see them on occasion, but it was pretty rare. So if you're there, you're usually there to teach, and most of the population knew that. Uh, you're either there to teach or you're there to do business. There's only re two reasons to go to Hangyang. My students would joke that, hey, maybe you're here to spy on us. Are you an American spy? <laughs> and I would always be like, what is there to spy on? There's not even a government building in this city. <clears throat> There's not even a government building in this city. Can't spy on anything here. <laughs> that, that was one thing I, I thought was really eye-opening because, you know, obviously we've had part of this conversation before in my own curiosity outside of like a formal podcast setting was that you seem to have this really joking relationship with your students, which was something that I was really, uh, I really leaned into as an educator myself in America. Um, so, I mean, I've kind of asked you this question already, like what was your relationship with your students, but do you have any relationships that stuck with you or for better or for worse with your students specifically? They're, they're all a little ephemeral, the relationships with the people of a different place like that, because I, I, I occasionally talk to some of them, but, you know, they live very, we both live very different lives. Like, there's nothing more apart than being on the literal other side of the world from each other. So I do keep up some of my friendships, but they're not like active friendships, if that's your question. I think I've answered it, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, for me as a student, there was a lot of professors that made a, a, like a world shattering difference in my life. But as an educator, I can tell you that any one of my students, it's a miracle if I remember their name, not because I don't, rem don't not because I didn't like them, or I didn't enjoy having them in class, but the sheer number of students that I had, it was impossible to get really attached to one of them. 
You know, it, it was oh. like there were so many people and I didn't know what they were going through. Was it something similar in China? For sure. Uh, I did have a, a relationship with some people, obviously, but the majority were just like you. Like I taught five classes with 30 students each. Hard to form a relationship with 150 people. Uh, I could probably only tell you right now a handful of my students' names, and those are their English names. Like uh, the language barrier also was a thing there where I don't remember most of the Chinese names that I people I ran into just because Chinese is a foreign tongue for me. Names in foreign tongues are difficult, of course. Uh, but I, yeah, there's always that divide of like, how do you form relationships whenever you have to form 150 of them? And, you know, you just hope the ones that you do make stick, I guess. Uh, and for the joking, joking, joking nature thing, like, yeah, that's my personality. I was always joking with my students, even when they didn't understand my jokes. Another teacher that I was with would always chastise me for it. She would like just hit me or tap me on the arm and say, dude, they don't understand like what you're talking about. And I go, but they laugh when I laugh. So like, we're all having fun here. <laughs> yeah. That's a huge thing when you're teaching, right? Is like when, when I, there was never the language barrier aspect, but sometimes I told jokes that just weren't funny, but as long as they laugh, even if it was a pity laugh, it's math class for me. So getting a laugh is like the end goal. It doesn't matter if they actually thought it was funny. <laughs> You just have to get them engaged and interested. And as long as they're engaged and interested, it doesn't matter if they understand. Yeah, I have that same perspective. It's good to it's good to have a little bit of levity in your classroom, in my opinion. Uh, prevents you from being the old white guy professor who no one likes eventually. Yeah, I remember sharing with my students. I always did the first five minutes was no math. So I would tell them a story. I would show them a picture. I showed them like, I was like, hey, my roommates and I made calzones last night. Check it out. You know, and I would show them a picture of our, like, I remember mine was like really beautiful and my roommates was really ugly. And I was like, hey, guess which one's mine? You know, and it was, the, it was an attempt, even if they didn't care about my calzones, because of course, who coming into math class is like, oh boy, I hope my math professor made a good calzone it's like it establishes that human contact that kind of is necessary to keep them engaged and uh working yeah i think that's good pedagogy you know prevents you from being seen as like the font of all knowledge which is something i think you want to avoid you know you don't want your students to think that you know everything you're an infallible being like i think that's not good for the getting people into your profession you know one of the po points of being a teacher is to create other teachers, I think. So you have to show them that you are a human being who they can eventually become as well if they want to. Yeah. One of my jobs at Macomb Community College, which is a place I recently got hired, is professional development. And so I've been paying a lot of attention to the way that other tutors tutor because I need to critique them and uh, improve their methodology which is strange because I'm, I'm younger than a lot of them. But what I noticed was a lot of them are willing to admit fault and willing to admit when they don't know the answer and things like that. And it made me feel a lot better about my experience tutoring because that kind of stuff happens all the time. You know, when, when someone asks me a math question uh, that uses mathematics I haven't used in six years because it's the hard way of doing things. And then I learned the easy way and I did that for six years. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's like the thing that you only use in pre-calculus and then never again. And so when they ask me that, I'm like, I, I don't remember. And it's that certain level of humility as an educator that I think really unifies a lot of educators. You know, I'm watching these 45 year olds say, you know what? I don't really know what to do, but let's try this. And I, first of all, it reinforced how I felt as an educator because it, it made me feel better about all the times I had to do that. And it made me feel more optimistic because everyone does that. Everyone's like, okay, I have no idea what the answer to your question is but let's see if we can figure it out. Oh, absolutely. I think that's healthy. And I mean, you've seen me do that whenever I have a student who 
ask me a math question when I'm tutoring people for the Alpha Scholars program at my school. And I then have to call you and say, hey, how do you do this math again? And then you give me the easy solution. I'm like, dude, this is pre-calculus. Like, we have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, that was the thing that I, I, I'm tutoring our pre-calculus students right now. And the thing about pre-calculus is it's like all the things you'd want to do in calculus, but with none of the machinery. Uh, but yeah, Whenever I think... you're doubting your when you're doubting your master's degree for a second over a pre-calc problem. Yeah. Um, she's some, I'm really good friends with her brother who is actually Seth. It was Seth's hall, Seth Hall's brother. I mean, oh. sister, Jesus. Gotcha. Um, right. You've told me this before. Yes, yeah. The person you're tutoring. So yeah. she'll sometimes live text Seth, who was obviously my first guest. Um, <laughs> a live update during our tutoring session. And she found it quite humorous when I incorrectly converted an improper fraction, like seven over two to a mixed number. I think I said like one in one half or something. And it was supposed to be three and a half. And when I corrected, I was like, "Any they'll give anyone a master's. I swear to God. <laughs> and she, That's she how touched- I feel. That's how I feel getting my master's degree right now. Like Jesus, all you have to do is do the work and you yeah. get your master's degree. Right. It's kind of insane, you know, because it, it being educated, it's like um, the Mandela effect, right? Like you realize just how stupid you really are. Like the way I describe myself to others, uh, which Trey has mentioned that he really likes is I am the dumbest smart person that, you know, yeah, I I definitely am experiencing the the Dunning Kruger effect. By the way, not the Mandela effect. It does Mandela, Mandela effect. Okay, yeah, the that's Mandela like effect Berenstein is the one where versus Berenstein. Yeah, Berenstein. it's the parallel universe conspiracy theory one, which by the way is real. All our podcast <laughs> listeners, uh, come at me, tweet me. Uh, no, uh, yeah, the Dunning Kruger effect hits me real bad too. Whenever you realize the depth of knowledge that you just don't have, like. Because I read a lot of rhetoric philosophy for my rhetoric degree, and uh, they reference things that I've never read. They talk about whole disciplines that I have no idea about. They talk about all these things that, like, you just don't have the time in a lifetime to fully understand. Like, mathematics, rhetoric, these branches of philosophy and, like, theory that go back all the way to the ancient Greeks and beyond that, like, how in the world do you learn everything about these disciplines? There's so much that you can never understand. And it's very humbling and very frustrating at the same time, because all of a sudden you realize, wait, if I actually want to master this, I have to do it for the rest of my life. Oops. (laughs) Yeah. That's something that's, I'm really glad you said that because that's kind of how mathematics is. Um, One of my professors was always notorious for being very arrogant and very uh, forward with how smart he thought he was. And so I talked to him once and I said, why are you like this? <laughs> and very bold thing to say to your professor. <laughs> Go ahead. Because, I mean, he, I just knew. I just knew he was the kind of guy who was going to answer honestly. And he gave me an answer that was really satisfying. He said, well, I know that I'm not any smarter than my colleagues and my colleagues are not smarter than I am. I may have different specializations than they do. They may catch on to things faster than I do, but that doesn't make them smarter than me. And if I catch on to things faster than they do, that doesn't make me smarter than them. So it's not that I think I'm smarter than everyone. It's not that I think I'm, uh, you know, hot shit. It's that I am confident no one is smarter than me. And I think in a vacuum, because I, I used to tell that to people, I said, well, Dr. Mahoney doesn't think he's smarter than everyone else. He just knows that everyone is not smarter than him. And when you say that in a vacuum, people assume arrogance. But I think that was really smart. I, I, that has never left me the idea that, well, why should, why should I treat myself as lesser when I know they're all my equals? Do you, have you, what's your experience with that? I appreciate that perspective a lot. Uh, I do think it is just a tad on the arrogant side, if not justifiably so, you know, because there are, he, he specializes in certain mathematics, like no one is better than him, at least in 
that field at your college. So it makes sense that he has that perspective, especially if he's not like at a conference with his peers. But at the same time, uh, there's always this principle, you know, you can't know what you don't know. Like how can you put yourself as this, like, I am the smartest guy in this room on this thing. Like, I don't know, maybe my buddy over there is secretly has a PhD in this and just hides it from everybody and lets me showboat, make myself look like a fool. That's a pretty extreme example, but you know, that's how I feel. That's, that's what it sounds like to me. It kind of reminds me of the, this is uh, this is a heavy segue kind of reminds me of how how some christians talk about their own religion of like we are the correct ones whether anybody else says we're right or wrong we know we're right and we're the best at this we're the best in this field we are the we are the chosen of god's people and no one will tell us otherwise like it's the same kind of arrogance i think uh, one thing before I comment on the Christianity thing, I want to I want to emphasize he didn't think that he was better. I want to I, I want to make sure I'm not mi- misrepresenting what he said. He didn't think that he was uh, better than anyone else. He, he more his argument was, I know that I'm on equal footing as everyone else, even if it takes me slightly longer to understand something that is outside of my discipline and vice versa, if it takes someone else uh a longer time to understand what's in my discipline. That doesn't mean that they're dumber than me. So he really emphasized his arrogance, came, his perceived arrogance came from a sense of total equality as opposed to a sense of him being above everyone else. No, and, I, I think I yeah. understand it. I, I still think that's just a little arrogant. It's not as arrogant as somebody just being walking around saying I am hot shit, but it's still just a tad on the arrogant side. And he, he acknowledges that as well. Uh, but I just, I just wanted to double down on it because I know that a lot of people I tell that to, their immediate reaction is, well, that's twice as arrogant as I thought he was. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. <laughs> like, it really was this element of like arrogance and humility at the same time, which I think is really healthy. Um, it's really interesting that you bring up kind of, uh, that's something I deal with oftentimes, and this is a little awkward to get into because I think, I think my dad listens to these, but that was kind of um, the most, the person I have the most philosophical conversations with when it comes to religion is my father. And a lot of his arguments come down to faith. They come down to, I'm like, well, why do you think this is true? And he said, well, I have faith that it is true, which I can understand the intrinsic value of. You know, I understand that uh, your religion is built on faith and faith is that you believe that it is true. And that is the answer to my question. Why do you think it's true? But I always kind of latched on to this idea of every single religion thinks that their religion is the one religion. With As someone with a little bit more experience with that kind of rhetoric, what do you think about that mentality? Uh, and as it's shared with every religion? Uh, I, well, you're kind of asking the wrong person, I think, because I'm somewhat Fair. of a pluralist. I, I don't really, I won't say another religion is wrong. I, I'll say I'm a practicing, professing Christian, but I'm not a particularly good one in any of the branches that I am a part of. Like, I'm a little bit too on the liberal side for the Church of Christ, which is the uh, which is where I, where the church that I'm a member of. Uh, I think that it's a very common belief among certain groups of Christians, especially where you and I have lived most of our life with, which is the Midwest, you know, the Bible Belt areas of, and it's the Baptists and the Methodists and the Church of Christ people who often, uh, the diehards who often say those things. I think that I think that it is, I I think it's an arrogant perspective. I don't necessarily hate it. Like I appreciate that people hold their faith and say that I believe this and it is right. And I respect that level of self-assuredness, but I, it is still arrogance, I think. And as far as like the rhetoric goes, I do think it is a poison uh, that has slowly gotten worse over time. 
as Christianity has become more of a minority religion in the United States compared to the non-religion majority that we're starting to see develop. Uh, the people who are Christian feel the need to, this is speculation at this point, of course, they feel the need to lash out more. They need to defend their faith more often. Uh, and I understand that perspective too. I just think that it's, we're seeing the results of it in our political situation, I think, uh, especially with the previous president and his horde of evangel evangelists behind him. Yeah, that, that's kind of where religion becomes a problem for me. I don't have any problem. I think that religion is, this is my own personal perspective. I think religion is a way for people to deal with and contemplate and meditate on their purpose in the world. I am not particularly bothered by the prospect of not having a purpose. I don't, I'm not bothered by the fact that I'm going to die one day. And within a hundred years, everyone will have forgotten that I exist and nothing I will have done mattered. But I think that people aren't comfortable with that fact and that religion is a great way to grapple with that fact. The, either the idea of some kind of purpose in life or some kind of life afterlife. I think there's different ways that people use religion to deal with their own mortality. Um, but that that's sort of something that I, I kind of like that you acknowledge is that um, I, I kind of like to, I don't, I don't like to disown religion because I think it's really interesting. I think it's an interesting way that people, uh, grapple with their own mortality and it's a bit upsetting. I'm trying to figure out where exactly I'm going with this, but it's a bit upsetting that um, there's certain people who are so rigid in their beliefs that they won't even acknowledge other religious systems. Because I think that a lot of them kind of complement each other. Um, and I think that a lot of them are not mutually exclusive. Um, what, I don't know. What, what do you think about uh, the mutual exclusivity of religions in that, uh, you know, Christians are kind of cemented in... Uh, okay, let me give you an example. So I've been talking to my father about a lot of uh, meditation I've been doing. And the meditation that I'm doing is the kind of just sit there meditation. It's very Buddhist in its practices in that you're not looking for anything. You're not, um, you are looking, you know, Buddhists look for nirvana, but the idea of looking for nirvana is to not look and experience it anyway. And I've been trying to discuss with my father, who's a Christian, uh, meditation, because my argument is that prayer, even in the Christian sense, is very meditative in nature. And he seems to disagree with that. And so my question was, what do you think about the mu mutual exclusivity of religions, despite the fact that there's, in my eyes, obvious overlap? I think that I think that this is a very academic perspective that you're drawing from. And I agree with it, because I also uh, operate primarily from an academic perspective. The, it, it's quite obvious if you study these things, if you look at the world and its religions, that there is a lot of overlap between uh, what people believe, especially between the three largest religions in the world, because they are very, very similar to one another, having the, or I guess they're not the top three, but the Abrahamic religions uh, are all very, very similar to one another, you know, Judaism, Christianity, and the Muslim faith. Uh, they all are intermingled into the same culture groups. They're so similar that it's hard to delineate them at times, and yet we treat people from them like a complete other. Uh, as far as Buddhism goes, that one is probably the most other for Christianity because it kind of denies the essence of the Christian worldview, which is that there is a... Uh, it's very individualistic Christianity. There is a father creator deity who has his chosen people. And the purpose of those people is to spread his word and his faith throughout the world and to create the good life, whatever that means. Uh, meanwhile, the Buddhists kind of fly in the face of that and say, no, everything's kind of collective, ain't it? And we are all one people, one organization. And the purpose of life is to 
reach fulfillment of whatever life is, find nirvana and annihilate the self, right? Like that's the end goal of the Buddhist uh, cycle of resurrection is to end the cycle of resurrection and finally become at peace with whatever the universe truly is. So they're diametrically opposed. And yet prayer is, I also agree, a type of meditation. And I do think that there are things that Christians can learn from Buddhists. I don't want to sound so arrogant as to say that Buddhists can learn things from Christians. I have no idea. I've never lived with Buddhists before. But I do think that there are uh, there are other religions of the world can be tapped into and their philosophies can be learned from, even if we don't fully practice them. Yeah, and that, that's kind of something that I think frustrates me whenever I'm having these discussions with my father is there's always this perceived from, from the receiving end on my father's end, it always seems like there's this uh, idea that I am trying to convert him to a different religion or a lack thereof, usually. And really, it's like, well, I kind of just want you to acknowledge the parallels or the benefits of considering this other religion. Not that I'm saying you shouldn't be a Christian. I'm saying that you should, you know, look at other religions with a critical eye and then implement their practices into your Christianity. You know, it's, it's, it's like, I'm not trying to destroy the faith that he has. I'm trying to, uh, I don't know, see how deep it goes or attack it from a, di- a di- uh, question it from a different perspective. You know, I, I'm never, I, <laughs> I, I wanted to change the verbiage of attack because I'm never approaching the conversation thinking, well, my dad shouldn't be a Christian or anything like that. You know, no, I, mean? I understand. I understand what you're saying. Yes. Like I said, it's a very academic perspective that we're drawing from of this seeing equality uh, among like religions and seeing them as similar to another. Uh, I don't th- think that I think obviously that's the correct perspective to have to give a little leeway to other perspectives and to other faiths. But like I said, I admire the self-assuredness of people in saying that we are the way, the truth, and the light, like, and we are the only way. Uh, you got to admire that. I don't know. Well, maybe not admire it. It is. It does get dangerous at times, but at the very least, I respect the resolve of it. Um, so with your experience with otherism and that kind of thing, how does that play into your understanding of what happiness is? So, uh, I, 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 that's a very poignant question. Actually, you, you managed, I I really wanted to get into the spirit of this question. We've talked about before that I don't really agree with the question, uh, outside of this podcast for various reasons, but I wanted to sit there and think if I were to seriously try to make a like campaign of making myself happy, what would, how would I go about it? So Uh, And it does have to do with like alterity, with otherness, with the process of otherizing a person. Uh, I think that if you want to be happy, this is both overly simplified and uh, hiding a lot, but it's duties. It's like the deontological process of living a moral life by saying this needs to happen and we're going to do it. I have a duty to this. Uh, And that's, I think people think they do that, right? They may, people who, people say things like, I don't want to be a racist. Uh, I have a duty not to engage in racism, right? That's not enough. It's not, you can't just have a duty to be not a racist. The duties come from saying, I will not allow racism around me, uh, that sort of thing. It's a positive spin on it. Uh, I think that that's the solution to happiness, not because there is one solution to happiness, to being happy, but because it puts the person who is looking for happiness into the role of like uh, a questing person, like you're giving yourself a job, a role in society, and really trying to go after like what will revitalize your soul the most? Because a lot of what 
we do in the modern world is just work or distraction. And there's nothing to really feed into like the core of what you are meant to do. And what you're meant to do is ultimately a question for you. But I think it comes from this like soul satisfying duty that you have to put onto yourself. Uh, that being said, I do want to say if anyone listening to this is unhappy, that's not your fault. I just wanted to get that out there real quick. Uh, there are things you can do to be happier and to give yourself a fighting chance, but the world really stacks the deck against you. Uh, simply having some sort of social justice or even monetary or whatever goal you want to put forth in your life isn't going to make you happy necessarily uh, unless you do something that's very soul affirming. Uh, but then the question is like, where do you get money? Like that's the problem with life, isn't it? Like my solution completely ignores the fact that you got to eat, bro. Uh, which is why, yeah, happiness is a difficult thing, but I think it starts with a duty to better, the world like you have to go out there and want to make a difference in some way uh, more than just the like meaningless we can more than the meaningless like baseline things that a person should do right like yeah you shouldn't be racist yeah you shouldn't be sexist like these are all baseline things you have to be a positive change on the world not just uh not just a net neutral in the equation You've given me a lot to chew on. I have a lot of questions. First of all, I want to know why do you like, so you, the first thing you said was that you kind of disagree with the question, like almost in its, in its phrasing. And then it's, that's my, 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 my interpretation of what you said. What, what is your, what's your reservations about answering the question in the first place? Uh, so I think that happiness is not like a state of being. There's no, there, there's no town of happiness. You can't travel to happiness land, nor can you abide in your happiness space or uh, even like for a time become a like happy person. You, you can, you can have times whenever you are happier, net than like other times in your life. But ultimately happiness is an emotion. Like even in times where you are a happier person, you will still experience doubt and anxiety and depression and other negative emotions. There is no such thing as this like happiness equation that the booksellers and the media conglomerates try to sell us. Uh, so to seek out happiness in the first place is almost missing the point Happiness, I think, comes from having a better community, which is why I land on duties as the way for people to be happy. The improvements, the actual like stalwart, we are going to make the world better improvements of your local and grander like national communities is the way that you can make the world better and the way that people can be happier. Because happiness, in my opinion, comes from human connections. The, we are social animals, and when the world is happy, we will be happier too. Uh, yeah, the elimination of hate, I guess, is the key to happiness, which is no small project, I know. <laughs> well, I, I love your answer because it's so similar to what mine is. What I said was that uh, happiness is not a state of being. It's a lens through which we view uh, the, the moments in between tragedy. It's like... And I know that I have articulated this to you once before, and you took issue with the fact that we view everything through lenses. But uh, I do think that it's sort of interesting where um, it's, it's exactly what you said, where happiness is not necessarily a state of being. It's like, um, it's kind of acknowledging when things aren't shitty, you know, and uh, to me, you know, the entire impetus behind this podcast was to have not even a thing for people to listen to. And my goal is not even to establish an audience or anything like that. It's to have this collection of 
uh, digital media where I'm talking to those close to me about what happens to them, because in my in my opinion, hum- the human experience is talking about our life experiences. It's you know talking about our hardships and how shitty life can be and how we get through that, and that is like the key to happiness is understanding each other, even though that is an impossible task. And I think the fact that it's impossible is what makes it so appetizing to me is I I want this to be hundreds of episodes long of these conversations with random people and just all these different perspectives, all these different, it's almost like pebbles on a beach, you know, it's like, each one doesn't really matter what one person thinks of happiness, but you get this collective idea that happiness is kind of helping each other out and understanding one another. And I I think, I think that my understanding of happiness is really close to yours. It's, it's the human experience. It's, it's interacting with others and understanding them as best you can and learning from their experience. And that's been a really incredible uh, really incredible feat for me. I, I'm very good at asking awkward questions. Uh, I'm very good at prying when you, <laughs> you shouldn't pry. And what happens is people open up in ways that you wouldn't expect. It's like my boss. Uh, she talked about raising, I talked about being a kid and how I would disrespect my mother and how I kind of learned to regret that disrespect that I showed her because now that I'm a working adult, it's like I get home and I'm like, oh my God, I couldn't take the trash out for my poor 60 year old mother who's been working nine to five for the last 40 years. And she comes home and she's like, Nick, did you take out the trash? And I'm like, no mom, I'm playing Call of Duty. I'm busy. And now now as an adult i'm like oh my god i couldn't take the 15 minutes to like take out the trash and make my mother's life a little easier and so so i i appreciate your answer in that your your answer hinges on other people so how do you use this understanding of happiness to get through uh obstacles when you're in a rut so our understanding is, is very similar. You know, happiness is, is talking to other people. But when you wake up in the morning and you've got some garbage to do, you don't want to do it. How, how do you motivate yourself to get through that kind of stuff? Uh, that, it's very difficult, right? Like, like that's, that, that's just the question of productivity. Like, how do you accomplish a goal? And for me, it's you just gotta, you just have to do that. You have to get up. You have to do what you need to do and one foot in front of the other, pay attention to one day at a time. Don't get caught up in the scale of your project. You know, you're not working on your master's degree right now. You're not working on your doctorate or your Navy SEAL like training, whatever it is, whatever long-term goal you have right now, you're uh, working on your paper. You're working on one page of your paper. Don't worry about the other 12. Get the first page done and then get the second page done. Uh, You have to take those bite-sized chunks and pretend like that's all the work you have to do. And then when the next piece of work comes up, you do that piece of work and you just continue on that way until eventually the whole task is completed and you've only ever had to deal with it one at a time. So the monumental thing you just accomplished doesn't seem very big to you anymore, which is both the blessing and the curse of doing something that is difficult because once you have your college degree, your master's degree, you'll realize, Oh no, that wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to (laughs) be. There's a lot more work to be done. What you mentioned is kind of similar to something I read in uh, Marcus Aurelius's meditations. He has this passage where he talks about the ant And he contrasts it very well with the things that we go through in the morning. And that's what I love so much about meditations is if you read it, it's easy to forget that it was written so long before we lived because he talks about this passage of the ant talks about how an ant uh, gets up in the morning and it does what it needs to do to serve its function. And that's it. It doesn't question why it's there. It doesn't, 
Uh, it's not lazy. It just gets up. It does its function. And then it, it, it dies or whatever, right? It's whatever ants do. And he's contrasting this with this feeling of, well, I want to stay in bed. It's very cozy under these covers. But an ant can't afford to be lazy. So why can you afford to be lazy? And that plays into an article I read, which is basically if you start the first five minutes of a task, you're like 85% likely to finish it. Um, That's a bit oversimplified. But essentially, it's what you said, where if you can start the task, if you can handle it one bite at a time, then you're more likely to finish the task. Like you said, one page and then another page and then another page, not 13 pages all at one time. Have you ever played RimWorld? I, I, I told you about that game. Yes, okay. I have. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I have almost been thinking about my life kind of like RimWorld. When you click on the little pedestrians or the little colonizers, they have all these pluses and minuses uh, when it comes to their mood. And there's a million and one different factors and you can't really control them. Like maybe a raider raided your base and you haven't quite taken care of that corpse sitting outside of your main base and your colony, your, your colony members aren't quite too happy about the fact they're looking at that, that, that dead body every day. But it's all these pluses and minuses that have really helped me kind of uh, pick up after myself. It, it, it reminds me that it's, it's the little things. You know, it's okay. uh, When I walk into my room after a long day of work, uh, I can get a plus one from seeing my bed made, or I can get a minus one when I didn't make my bed in the morning. And it's all these little pluses and minuses that factor into how I'm feeling in a day. And so what I've, what I've started doing is treating myself like a little rim world uh, peon And I'm like, okay, what kind of things do I enjoy seeing around? And what kind of things do I not enjoy seeing around? Do you feel that sort of similar way? Or um, what what brings this question to mind is I once told you, well, I don't do my laundry enough. And you told me, Nick, you just got to let that kind of stuff go. Like you, you, you do the sniff tests, you don't smell don't worry about it so much, man. Like you just got to forgive yourself for the little stuff like that. So where does your understanding of forgiving the little stuff and my idea of emphasizing little stuff, where does that connect? Where does that end play for you? Oh, I think it's just a difference of personalities right there. Uh, I, I can like go a little stuff. Uh, I try not to wear dirty clothes, of course, but you know, if my laundry is a day late, I'm getting it done this afternoon. Uh, I'm not seeing my students today. I'm going to throw on this t-shirt I've worn once before and hit the gym with that old t-shirt, right? Uh, Or like if you look around my room right now, it's absolutely covered in books. Just like every table, every surface is just covered with big, thick novels or textbooks or a lot of rhetoric books as well. And it just doesn't bother me. Like the clutter is the clutter. I get rid of it if someone's coming over because I don't want to be judged. But when it's just me here, like I kind of like seeing my books around. It kind of reminds me of the work I have to do. Like, oh, right. I need to read chapter six of that book today. Like, uh, but yeah, at the same time, there are there are things that like I do find appalling. There are little things that do give me in your metaphor mood debuffs. <laughs> like, uh, uh, if I see my sink full of dishes, can't abide by it. I have to, I have to clean the sink. I have to keep my kitchen and my bathroom clean. Those two are non-negotiables, but general clutter throughout the house doesn't necessarily bother me that much. So, yeah, I think that, and I do think it's important to, if you have a day where you look at the bed in the morning and you're like, man, fuck that. Like, <laughs> You got to forgive yourself of those little things. Just get on with your day. You can you can do it in the evening if you feel like it or just sleep in a unmade bed. It's not like most of the listeners here have wives or anything. I'm kidding. <laughs> well, it's true. Most of my listeners are like 24 to 30, uh, at least for now. 
Um, funny enough, uh, from the 24 to 30 year old listeners, uh, the second podcast wasn't as popular, but with the older audience that I talked to, it was much more popular. It's like the, the idle chit chat of the first podcast appealed to younger audiences. And then the more on point discussion appealed to older audiences in the second podcast. So it's a really interesting kind of smorgasbord of an audience that I've got here of just people that I've met that I'm sending this podcast to. Have you, have you had any jobs that were like totally grueling, you know, thing or even just experience that you knew you had to get through? Man, you and I have had the same job before stalking at Kroger. Ain't that some kind of hell? I'll tell you what. <laughs> Nothing like going to your job at some days 6 a.m. Some days if you got the evening or the afternoon shift a little bit later, you know, you got to go in at three. But no matter what time you got in, you go in there and you unload the truck and you stack all the boxes onto a pallet uh, or onto your carts, really. And whatever you can't fit on the carts, you put on pallets. And then you take the carts and you spend the rest of the day putting boxes on shelves. That is the most grueling, mind-numbing task I have ever had. And it is also a Sisyphusian task because it will never, ever end. And someone will always have that job. And I feel deeply for them. That job sucks. Uh, it's not even particularly hard, right? It's it's a workout some days, you know, when you, you have to do the Coke aisle. So yeah, you, like you the have Gatorade to lift a whole lot of, yeah, yeah. yeah. Then you have to lift a whole lot of boxes of Coke, but it's not that much of a workout. It's never that hard, but in the moment when you've been doing it for six hours and it gets hard. Yeah. Those, those mind numbing, grueling jobs are the worst ones for me. The ones that are not intellectually stimulating, like even in the slightest can't handle them uh i have to have some kind of like work that i think is partially meaningful uh you know work that can't be replicated by a computer if we gave it wheels and a forklift like <laughs> yeah because exactly yeah like a, a, a robot with an advanced arm could stock a shelf exactly couldn't make it look very pretty, but you know, that's not that hard either. <laughs> yeah. I would say, I don't know, you know, given a year or two, I feel like they could make it condition uh, a shelf. Did you ever find that kind of stuff meditative? Because uh, that's kind of when I kind of did my, my heavy thinking. Cause I, I worked the night shift uh, when I moved to Michigan and, you know, every day when I walked in, I was like, holy shit, I have to be here the next eight hours, <laughs> like putting boxes on pallets and stocking shelves. And that was when I kind of went into myself and started to really kind of meditate on what I've been feeling and things like that. Yeah, I wish I had that ability when I was working. No, I if I was thinking too much during one of those shifts, it was mostly like, Oh my God, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> Why am I here? I have a college degree, like, and I'm here stocking shelves. What is wrong with this picture? And yeah, I think about things too, but usually it was, I would just try to put on some music or a video of some kind, some lefty normie thing, and uh, just listen to, listen to other people's thoughts for a while so I didn't have to have my own because I was pretty negative at that particular moment of my life as well thanks to you know coronavirus being a thing as well so not only am I stocking shelves all the time I'm stocking the shelves thinking some idiot's gonna walk through here with no masks we don't have an enforcement <laughs> mechanism for our mask policy and just give me coronavirus for no reason like you know, that was life then. It still is life. We just have moved on past it, honestly. <laughs> we just kind of stopped talking about it as much. Yeah, exactly. I really relate to what you said about, like, I have a college degree. What's gone wrong here? Because it, Kroger for me was a, an experience in humility. It was uh, kind of reevaluating. It was kind of where this whole podcast started, where it was like, I, I had to reevaluate what happiness was to me 
because it clearly wasn't measured by job success because I got a master's and then I went back to fucking Kroger. So uh, it was this, it was this weird humbling experience. And I want to say that while I was very, while I'm very positive and um, I'm an advocate for bullshit jobs like Kroger uh, there, I mean, like 50% of the time I was in my car driving to Kroger and I was looking at myself in the rearview mirror going like, like literally screaming at myself, like, why am I going to Kroger at nine 30 at night to go fucking stock some shows until five in the morning? <laughs> I was yeah. legitimately like very unhappy with my situation, you know, cause it just felt like I was stuck. I used to have calls to the void trying to work where I would be thinking if I swerve into traffic right now, (laughs) would it break my arm and then I could get off for a while from work or would it just kill me? Which would I prefer? Yeah, then I would never have to work again. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, just let me chat your ear off. No, uh, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. I'll see you around, Nick. Thanks. Yep. We'll talk again soon. Have a good yep. day, man.